to ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. That's... <laughs> I think you'll understand When I say that something I want to hold your hand I want to hold your hand I want to hold your hand We're often quick to use the term cultural phenomenon. Through the back lens of history, few things truly are. Yet 50 years ago, we experienced something that truly lives up to that idea. By now, we've all been regaled by memories of the Beatles' appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show 50 years ago last week. But with that as the backdrop, what's the larger cultural significance? Perhaps it's fair to say that the Beatles transformed music, popular culture, fashion, and movies. They created something we rarely see today, a cultural experience that brought the entire nation, with the exception of friend Leibowitz, together in one shared set of emotions. My guest, Penelope Rollins, was there literally on the barricade, and now she's culled some of the most interesting retrospective thoughts of today, trying to examine Beatlemania and even what it might mean in 2014. Penelope Rollins has written about culture and the arts for Architectural Digest, The Daily Beast, Vogue, and The Wall Street Journal. Her previous books include the anthology Paris Was Ours and A Dash of Daring. It is my pleasure to welcome Penelope Rollins back to this program to talk about The Beatles Are Here. Penelope, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited about being here. Great to have you here. When you look back on this, and certainly all the various people that contributed to this, and we'll talk about a lot of it, do you see it as the Beatles themselves or the Beatlemania that was part of it as, as the lasting phenomenon? You know, I think um, it's such an interesting question. I think that it's the Beatles themselves at this point. It's as if Beatlemania was this huge distraction, and once it died down, we could hear the music, and the music was that good, and it's that enduring because it is that good and so innovative time after time, album after album. So the Beatlemania was fun to look back at, but it I'm not sure it mattered in the end, except that it was sort of an interesting thing, but it wasn't art, and, and the Beatles were making art. It also came, and, and it's so easy to forget this, it came at such a precarious moment in the country's psyche, coming as it did literally less than a year after the JFK assassination. It really did, and that was the point so many people I talked to for my book and so many people who wrote essays for it uh, mentioned. It was really followed very close on the assassination. It was actually about six weeks, and I think the two phenomena are are closely related, and that was one of the fascinating things I discovered as I worked on the book. Talk a little bit about that, the ways in which you think, and, and others that contributed to the book, that the two are related in some way. It's funny, the first one who brought it up to me was Joe Queen and the humor writer, who's <laughs> just an indelible part of this book, and in fact, the book opens with right. him, and he made that comment when I first approached him about writing, and I was, really? And I looked back, and indeed, it was such a such a one event followed the other so quickly but i think what what it was was that 
the atmosphere was so gray, it was so grim, and as I went back and remembered being sent home from school that day in Manhattan, it, it really came to me what it was like to walk through the streets with the crying adults all around me and the sense as if a an atom bomb had been dropped in our midst, and everything felt like it was in disarray. and. I don't think we kids were screaming because Kennedy had been assassinated. I don't think that's the relationship. But I do think that the media pounced on the Beatles and pounced on the story as a kind of antidote to the national gloom. And as for the screaming, we heard um, the disc jockeys where I lived in Manhattan started talking about the screaming girls. So they focused on that, and we followed them almost without hearing the music, almost before, not quite. Mm -hmm. There was also a sense that it it was part of change in the culture, and it was also reflective of change in the culture. I agree. I mean, I think that um, no pop music had affected us that immediately, I don't think. And there was something about the music itself, too, that, that made us carry on that way. I remember... So distinctly, those first sounds I heard on She Loves You, that first drum roll, it just was so there, it was so now, and, you know, we were off and running with it. Talk a little bit about your own involvement, your picture on on the cover of this volume, standing there at the barricades, and really how you came together again with some of those other girls in the picture. It was really a fascinating story, and I uh, years ago, I was obsessed with the Beatles, like millions of other American girls, and I was living in New York with my family, and my mother went out one weekend, left for the weekend, leaving us in the care of our maternal grandmother, and she said, whatever you do, don't go out to scream at the Beatles when I'm gone, when I'm out of town, so... Of course, she was no sooner out the door than I was to out there screaming. They were in New York at the hotel. I was a helpless victim. I had to be there, of course. And a photograph was taken. And the day my mother came back, it ran in the New York Times. And I was so busted. That's that's the <laughs> preamble to this story. I was so in trouble because all her friends began calling and saying, isn't that... Penelope in the newspaper today. Well, you know, the photograph came and went. The photo, you know, back then newspapers didn't stay online. They went away. So years later, the Times began reprinting it. And of course, I remembered the story. And I kept thinking about it. And as a journalist, I got kind of intrigued and wrote about the experience for Vogue magazine. And one of the girls in the picture I had been standing behind a big sign. There were five of us. I don't think I even know knew the name of those girls. And one of them wrote to me on Facebook, and we became fast friends. So that also inspired the book. You know, the, I would talk to her about the Beatles and what they meant and how we'd met that day. And we came from very different backgrounds. And through her, I met two of the other women. And... I have to say, they're extraordinary people, and two of them have had very, have had quite a lot of loss in their lives, and 
talked about how the Beatles inspire them to this day. So it just was kind of a journalist's dream in a way to hear about the Beatles through the lives of people today. Talk a little bit about, and, and there are some that write about this in, in the volume, the, the connection to the civil rights movement of the time as well, and the whole idea of this being a way, a further way, a more palatable, culturally palatable way into black music. Yes, that was another, you know, the, as, I, as I got into the story and began hearing all these recollections, remembering ones of my own, and began remembering what the world was like then, that was the other inescapable thing besides the assassination of President Kennedy was the situation with civil rights. And remembering that the Civil Rights Act hadn't yet even been passed and our country was terribly segregated. And one of the women I talked to for the book, there there are men and, and women in it, but one of the people I spoke with was a fascinating novelist named Judy Juanita who contributed a piece she wrote and she had been been a black panther and she brought home to me something I think as a white American I might not have focused on which is that black culture was kind of was avoided by the white media there was what she called a whiteout and that one of the she and many others in the book made the point that what the Beatles did do was repurpose American music. They did it brilliantly, and they were so influenced by R&B and all these wonderful musicians, Chuck Berry and the like, and they brought it back to us, and they gave us an enormous musical present in doing so. One of the other things that that you talk about and and others write about in in this volume is the way in which the coverage of the Beatles, the journalism of the time, including the story by Gay Talese that that your picture is part of, that 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 was changing at the same time and that the coverage of it and the writing about it was so much a part of what was going on right then. It's so true, and that was another real, real gift of that photograph. In a way, was I, I so I, you know, began to. I knew it had been taken. Every now and then, I'd see it. But then, when I delved into the, the online archives of the Times and saw it was by Gay Talese, it really was a, a fascinating moment to me as a journalist because, of course, he was one of the proponents of new journalism and his piece is hilarious, especially when you look at the other articles that were running in the Times that day, which are very staid, very matter-of-fact, very business-like, and there he is making silly comments. He talked about how chic and shriek mingled. It was uh, talking about a society event at which girls had been screaming a benefit that the Beatles, where the Beatles were performing. So... You know, they were a huge part of it, and they were often running with this story. And if you think about it, it's remarkable. Other people who covered the Beatles' arrival then include Tom Wolfe and Nora Ephron, who went off, you know, to, to be, you know, great examples of that great new journalism, too. Of course, the exception being, as I mentioned in the introduction, Fran Leibowitz, who was not affected by it at all. No, she was very funny. She gave me an interview, which I was delighted to have, but she started out saying, 
you know, I didn't like the Beatles, so I don't know why you want to talk with me. Well, you want to hear Fran Lebowitz talk about anything, frankly. She's so funny and so articulate. So I did get her talking, and I call her section, I describe her as a non-fan, which really sums it up. I mean, one of the things she talks about that, that's so interesting and even hard to imagine in the context of the time and of the way we all look back on it today is that not only did she, what was more that she didn't like them, it's that she didn't care. I mean, it was not even on her radar in some respects. No, and she, and that's why she was kind of a fascinating witness, because she was at middle school in New Jersey in those days, and I think she's, uh, I mean, this is just my opinion, of course, but she has a certain detachment from the rest of us, or, and I, I guess that's a journalistic thing as well, so... She described almost in horror the phenomenon of going to school after the Ed Sullivan show when everybody had been swept up and they were, they had all chosen their favorite Beatle and they were often running in full Beatle mania and she was looking at it from a distance appalled. But the other thing that's funny is uh, she also talked about a boy. The boys were affected, which she reminded me of in the, in my interview with her. And they came in combing their hair forward, and she describes a poor boy who sent home from school for trying to look like a beetle. It was so shocking back then. I don't remember who it is that touched on this, but one of the other things that's so interesting in looking back at it all is the degree to which it was sophisticated and simple at the same time, that it had an intellectual value, particularly for musicians, but it also was very emotional on many levels. I think so, and, and that's exactly what I thought going back to the early music and some of the music that came a bit later, that some of the ballads like something which were just very, very simple, uh, very simple storylines, if you will. Actually, the melodies could be simple as well and very repetitive, and yet they were so straightforward and they spoke to us so powerfully. What's interesting is how clear people's recollections seem to be. I was fascinated by that. It's funny you say that. And then, as I say, as they talked, I'd be remembering more. It was a huge moment, and as somebody in the book says, it's, it is rather like President Kennedy's assassination. You know where you were when you heard them. Why do you think that is? I think, as I, as I say, I do think the media played it up. It was mm -hmm. hyped to an almost ridiculous degree. But I do think we were receptive to it because of the climate in this country, the political climate. But also, I think it's because the music was that good. And that was the conclusion I walked away from all this research with, which is the reason there, there was Beatlemania, the reason they've endured, the reason we're going on and on about them to this day and will keep doing so is that they were that good. And it made it fascinating for me to talk to as many musicians as I did because they could explain to me how they were good in ways I, as a non-musicologist, non couldn't quite get a handle on. What they were doing musically, they always did something new and innovative, and they always moved us forward.
And that I remember even as a kid, each record you'd be, what, what, what now? And then you'd be behind it 100% or more. There's also the point that Joe Queenan makes that what they did is sweep away everything that came before and that if you look at contemporary music, particularly as far as 20th century, 21st century, that yeah. there's, there's before the Beatles and after the Beatles and it is a very clear line of demarcation. Very clear line, and I think that's something I actually have a, a text from Billy Joel. It's a was a reprint of something he had or a, he had said in a classroom discussion at some point that I got permission to use, and he was talking about how a lot of the music when the Beatles came had been put forward by record producers to kind of keep the kids happy. There was a lack of authenticity, I think, and again, we weren't. We in white America were not being that exposed to black music, which is at that point. So they were so authentic and they were so alive and all the sort of fake acts. Well, it would be nice to say they all died away. I don't think they did, but it really sort of blew them out of the water, some of the more mediocre stuff. Mm -hmm. Tell me some of the stuff that, that people wrote that surprised you as you worked through this. I think Judy Juanita's comment really, really was, you know, when she said, oh, you know, by the way, we didn't see ourselves on TV back then about being an African-American in this country. And that was really, you know, it was one of those moments when you think, well, of course, but I'd forgotten. Um, I think talking to, to Cousin Brucie was a revelation. He was the big disc jockey when I was growing up, Cousin Brucey Morrow in New York, WAMC, MCA, pardon me. Um, Talking to him about the power of radio in those days and what it all meant and this kind, and at night the radio waves would lengthen and the show would go across the country and everyone was listening. So I found all of it really fascinating uh, to look back at it all. It also reminds us, I mean, as if we need further reminders, but it really brings into bold relief this idea of the country coming together in kind of a singular attitude, a singular event or series of events, which is so different than the bifurcation of today. I have to say I found that a sort of tragic aspect of doing this research, which is we were so united. The media was not poisonously political and that to me is not an improvement that things have gone that way we had a few stations they aimed to be objective obviously they couldn't always succeed and and we were united in a way that just is gone at least for now and that seemed rather sad to me in the end Mm -hmm. the other and, and i touched on this a little bit before was the degree to which it was so much about emotion there was the question, yeah. I can't remember where it was in the book or in an article, where somebody asked you what you and the other girls in this photo were thinking, and the answer was you weren't thinking about anything. It was all emotion. It was, and that was our. That was another really interesting thing, and there were lots of boy Beatles fans, but they didn't choose to express their devotion the way we did and it was almost a badge of honor to scream and to be in love to be wildly in love with a beetle and this is the part that was very touching one of the many parts was we all thought the beetles 
we all thought that we'd marry a beetle. It was a <laughs> foregone conclusion. And there's only one woman in the book who's one of the girls in the picture who says, you know, I'm a realist, and I didn't think John Lennon was going to say, out of the 50 million girls, that I'm going to marry you. So... Um, one one of the other interesting things, and you touched on it a, a few minutes ago, is this sense of hype on the one hand, tremendous amount of hype surrounding this, but also the authenticity and how the two things coexisted together in, in a pretty interesting way. I think that's true. I mean, it was the hype that brought brought them to us and brought them to us so vividly and hysterically, but it's the authenticity to which we responded in a way. I don't know what that tells us about the time or about today, but but there is something interesting in that idea somehow. I agree. And I think they were hyped, but they were real. And that's something that, you know, they they constantly brought us down to earth, didn't they, with their humor and their nuttiness and their and their humanness, really. The other thing that so many people touch on in these pieces in the book is just the enduring nature of it, how long the interest in the music and in them has lasted. Right, and that's and, and that has been a fascinating thing about doing a book that touches on the Beatles, is suddenly all sorts of people want to talk to you about it. And it it's true, they endured, and the music was that good, and they have the respect of so many musicians. They're so cemented in, in our culture, it's fascinating. And I don't think people keep asking me what I think will happen, which, of course, I can't know, nor can any of us, but it seems to me they'll go on and on and that no one could be that good again. Perhaps I'm wrong, but I think lots of people have that thought as well. Penelope Rollins, the book is The Beatles Are Here. Fifty years after the band arrived in America, writers, musicians, and other fans remember... Penelope, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it, Jeff. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.